Hello, Sarah Windsor here. I am an author of queer romance, fantasy, and cyberpunk, living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm very thankful to Moss for inviting me to be a part of his author interview series. Thank you, Moss. I am delighted. Um, first question is, where do I come from and how has that influenced my writing? Um, first of all, not in a location sense, but I grew up as an evangelist kid. I was actually homeschooled so that I could travel around with my parents when I was little. And so I was all over the place. We were all over Europe, all over the United States. Um, we actually went to Russia in 1990 and 91, uh, right after the Iron Curtain had fallen. And I was like nine and ten. You know, people were pulling down statues of Lenin in the squares. The KGB was following us around. Uh, when I was nine, I thought that was fantastic. I was having a great adventure. Uh, but as an adult, things like that made me very interested in uh, history and a uh, context for a lot of things that I didn't understand when I was a kid. Um, so I ended up studying history, uh, Japanese history and East Asian studies in grad school and just being very interested in um, people. Uh, and stories not even on a grand scale, but on a really personal scale. Because uh, I think that's sort of where you really see history play out is um, in individual stories. Uh, so a lot of my writing, I tend to have something big going on, but then focus very small on the relationships and just impact on, you know, small impact on people's lives and everyday existence. Um, and so I think, you know, that was a good childhood for somebody who grew up wanting to be a writer. Uh, it also gave me a very fraught relationship with religion. Uh, religion features in most of my stories. Uh, not Christianity per se, because I think that would be a little too on the nose, but um, religion as a force for uh, you know, power and human corruption. Uh, there's usually at least one zealot anti-hero character who's completely obsessed. Uh, there's usually somebody who wants to kill the gods. Uh, there's usually a question of, you know, tradition and an old way of doing things versus like a new humanist way of doing things and which is better and why. Uh, no clear answers in the stories. I just like to grapple with those things. Um, but I think I probably work out a lot of my like anger at being an outsider uh, as a, you know, bisexual queer person growing up in a really right-wing evangelical childhood and family, um, that definitely comes out in my writing. Um, Location-wise, I think, I mean, Pittsburgh is a great place to live if you want to write cyberpunk. You have these sort of, you know, rusty bones of dead industry um, with the old mills along the river and you know, smokestacks everywhere. And then in, in that, you know, sort of carcass, you have all of these robotics and artificial intelligence industries coming up uh, as the sort of renaissance for the city. Uh, and that's really interesting. Um, so, you know, I've never written anything set in Pittsburgh, but I think you see that in a lot of my post-apocalyptic or cyberpunk stories. Um, a setting that does feature is England. My family on my dad's side is English. My uh, nan, my grandmother, who uh, took care of me a lot growing up, was absolutely cockney, like everybody on that side of the family is, as East End Londoners as you can be. Um, I didn't realize how strong her accent was until I had friends over and they couldn't understand a word she said. Um, so I can speak, well at least understand Cockney very well. So when I was writing my short stories, uh, The Saint and Traveler and Bolt, that are both in a cyberpunk London, 
uh, I wanted to have um, the main character speak a strong urban dialect, and I think Cockney is probably the only strong urban dialect that I have enough mastery of that I could do it as a dialect in a story, so that's why Peacock speaks Cockney. Uh, another fun thing is that um, he's from Shoreditch in those stories, and that's because my family on that side is actually from Shoreditch, uh, which now the east, that part of the East End of London is complete hipsterville. Like, you know, it's like she-she little stores and uh, very high-end, but uh, historically it was very working class. So um, I kind of wanted to reclaim it. And in my neo-London, it's a very, um, once again, like working class, multicultural, poor part of town. And uh, that's just a sort of, you know, thing I did to amuse myself, um, inserting part of my heritage in there. Uh, see, what kind of stories did I read growing up and how did they influence me? Uh, well, I, I was always obsessed with fantasy. Um, it was just my natural inclination, uh, which is funny because nobody else in my family reads fantasy. Uh, I think when you're a kid, it's natural for people to give you fantasy books. So, like, I loved the serendipity Morgan books. I always loved unicorns. I mean, watched The Last Unicorn basically, you know, every day of my childhood. Uh, and then also there was a book called Sarah's Unicorn. Uh, it was very, um, that love of unicorns stayed with me. So, like, when I read Haruki Murakami's Hard World Wonderland and The End of the World, and it was this adult book, as a uh, kind of magical realism with unicorns in it, a very serious book with unicorns in it, I thought, oh, I want to write adult books that have unicorns in them. I don't think these need to just be in children's literature. Um, so, you know, that was a definite influence. And I actually have a, a collection of unicorn books, uh, including a bunch of antiques, so that's fun. Uh, the first book I ever read that had queer characters was... Mercedes Lackey's The Last Herald Mage. I picked it up because it had white horses on the cover. And then my mind was blown. Um, I think as a very sheltered, you know, child of this very right-wing Christian family, I didn't even know gay people existed. And so having a uh, novel with a gay main character changed my world. Uh, I didn't realize yet that I was queer, but I had this very strong response to the story and was like, I want to read stories like this, and I want to write stories like this. Um, so basically from The Last Herald Mage onward, I was like, okay, yeah, queer fantasy, that's what I'm going to write. Um, and, you know, I had this, like, early teenage Romeo and Juliet stories, the first novel I ever tried to write that was about a gay angel and a demon uh, on Earth, where the angel had fallen and the demon had ascended. And uh, it's funny with Good Omens coming out and being like, oh yeah, this is a much, much better version of that, you know, awkward teen drama that I tried to write about an angel and a demon falling in love. Um, let's see. I loved Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is really what got me into comic books. So reading The Sandman in high school uh, changed everything for me. So I'm actually working on a webcomic as well. Um, and really like the, that medium of storytelling. I like manga a lot. I lived in Japan for years and read tons of manga. And I actually discovered gay romance uh, as like the boys love genre of manga before I even knew that it was possible in novels. 
um, I came to romance novels very, very late in life. Um, so I'll talk about that later because we're talking about childhood loves. Let's see. Uh, so always loved fantasy, loved Tolkien, uh, C.S. Lewis, George MacDonald. Uh, Fantasties is one of my favorite books, and I read it very young. And this sense that fairyland sort of overlaps the real world, and his dreamy sense of writing, I think, is something I've really inspired me. Um, I, fantasy is an escape from reality, but I also think it kind of captures my worldview that there is magic, uh, all around us and in the everyday. There's magic in nature. There's magic in uh, human relationships and work and just everyday life. Uh, so when I discovered Studio Ghibli films, I think that was another milestone where I was like this. This is the kind of story that I love and that I want to tell. Um, so I love... You know, Princess Mononoke was actually the first Studio Ghibli film that I saw. Uh, but basically everything they've done, I like infusing the everyday with magic uh, in my writing. Let's see, process. Uh, I think when I discover my own process, really, I'll be in a better place. I'm very slow. I'm a turtle writer. Uh, some of that is like most people, I have to hold down a full-time job and, you know, I've been diagnosed when I was a teenager with chronic fatigue. I think I'm, I've improved a lot since then, but I am in general like a low energy person. So I really have to decide what I'm going to commit that energy to. Uh, and carving out time for writing and giving myself like space to write slowly is an important part of my process. Uh, like I usually write sort of 500 words when I sit down for hours. Uh, I'm not one of those people that sits down and writes 3,000 words. So uh, it took me a while to make peace with that and that I just had to make enough space and enough time for me to write and just keep slowly plugging away at things. But when I came to accept that more and give myself more space to do that and tried not to be frustrated. Uh, just plugging away at things a little bit at a time actually does end up in, you know, finished manuscripts. So, uh, like, I was in grad school for a while and thinking I wanted to be a history professor, and I had this realization as I was in grad school that if I did that, that would be the only thing I could do. Uh, all of my energy would have to go towards being a professor and doing academic writing and teaching. And I was like, you know, I actually really want to write fantasy and romance novels. So I should just stop with this master's and not be a professor. Uh, and so since then, I've tried to have jobs that leave space for me to write. So I am a night shift caregiver, and that is perfect because uh, I can write at work at night during sort of the quiet times. And so even though that might not have been the best financial decision, like, it's okay, and I can live with it. And shaping my life as much as I can around wanting to have time to write uh, has been working out for me. I don't even know how to talk about my process of editing and finishing novels, because so far I've only published short stories. And I'm incredibly intimidated by the uh, process of editing, which is funny, because I was actually a professor professional editor for years, 
but editing other people's work and trying to edit your own work are very, very different creatures. Um, so I'd at least like to get, you know, a clean second draft before I send it to somebody else to edit who will have a uh, much more objective viewpoint than I do. So, yeah, my process, mostly I would just encourage you, if you are somebody who, you know, doesn't have a lot of energy, writes slowly, or, you know, has a life where it's not convenient to write, I think that's most of us. You know, people have jobs, people have kids. Um, just sticking with it and not being discouraged. You know, if you, anything you don't stop doing eventually will be finished. Um, my main question for myself is how to make that work financially as an indie author, since usually volume is a major part of making writing financially successful. Um, I have opened a Patreon as a way of, you know, investigating that. My friend Nairi has a very successful serialized uh, novel. Uh, she's on her second series, actually, uh, through Patreon, where people subscribe. And so she makes like a couple hundred dollars a month. And that, you know, that's not going to pay all of your bills, but that's a significant chunk of income, you know, for a writer, for most writers. So I think my game plan from here in is probably to try to do something like that. But I'd also, I think being a hybrid is good. Um, I'd love to try to get something traditionally published. If that doesn't work out, I'm willing to look into self-publishing, even though that means a lot more of a financial investment from your own end uh, on the front end. Um, so I would just encourage people, you know, keep going, don't give up, respect your own process, uh, and if that doesn't look like other people's and, you know, isn't as fast or as lucrative as you would like, just, you know, keep going. Don't get discouraged. And I think with the, uh, the market how it is now, being hybrid is good. You have a lot of options, which is frustrating in that you have to research those options and decide what's best for each individual piece. But I also think it, it means you have a lot of possibilities. So I would just like to really encourage people. What am I reading right now? I just finished Casey McQuiston's Red, White, and Royal Blue, which is an adorable gay romance novel. Uh, I liked it well enough that I think I'm going to go get a uh, physical copy of it. I usually read books as ebooks, and then if I like them a lot, I'll go buy a physical copy of it uh, if one's available so that I can reread it and have it on the shelf. Um, I'm rereading Nora Sakovic's The Foxhole Court. Her All for the Game series is a comfort read for me. I, I just love it. It's sort of like high Q if it were a gay romance and had way more wet, messed up characters. But, you know, books that have really broken characters who have found family and find their version of a happy ending. Like, you know, it doesn't look necessarily like what you would think a happy ending looks like. It's still complicated but they get to find peace with their pasts and, you know, find people who love them. Uh, that's just my favorite kind of story. Uh, so the All for the Game series definitely fits into that category. Another one like that that I'm planning to reread is The Raven Cycle by Maggie Stiefvater, uh, The Raven Boys and The Dream Thieves and the rest of those books. Her new Call Down the Hawk about her character Ronan is coming out this autumn. So I need to reread that series so I know what happens beforehand. Um, 
and the Dream Thieves in that series is just one of my favorite books in general. Uh, usually what I'm looking for in a book is something that kind of straddles the line between queer romance and queer fantasy. Um, and I have some very cool books by friends uh, on Twitter who are in my to-be-read pile that I recently bought. Liminal Hearts by Dawn Schuldenfrey is a queer fantasy with a unicorn as a main character. Uh, and, you know, unicorns treated seriously in adult fantasy is absolute catnip to me. So I can't wait to read that. And then um, Captain Stellar by R.J. Sorrento is a queer superhero story um, and that sounds very fun. So that's my to-be-read pile. My comfort reads are mostly like K.J. Charles and Cat Sebastian. Uh, I just finished K.J. Charles' Proper English, which is a uh, lesbian romance, uh, Regency house party, like historical, uh, absolutely delightful book. And then Cat Sebastian's Hither Page, uh, I have not read it yet, but it's in my to-be-read pile which I, I think is also a historical lesbian romance. So that sounds absolutely delightful. Um, like my ideal of like straddling that line between romance and fantasy is probably C.S. Picant's Captive Prince trilogy. Uh, I would love to write something like that uh, where you just, you could shelve it with romance, you could shelve it with fantasy and just really powerful not afraid to be problematic and have really messed up characters. Um, but in the end, you know, you get that happy ending that you feel like you worked hard for. Books that I hate? <laughs> uh, basically anything where I feel like the author was trying to be clever and would like me to be impressed with how smart they are. Uh, David Foster Wallace. I hate David Foster Wallace. I had to read brief interviews with hideous men in undergrad, and I just felt like the author was sneering at me. Like I had to read about these hideous men, and he's like, yes, I'm admitting that they're racist and misogynist, but I also would like you to empathize with them and to see how smart and clever I am for writing about them this way and putting myself in their shoes. And I mean, it's, I just wasn't having it. Um, and also, allegories. Um, I think both, you know, writers trying to be very smart and clever and sort of laughing at their readers and also allegories where they're kind of preaching to the reader and you're not meant to just invest in it as a story, but you're meant to, you know, take away something philosophical. Uh, if I had known that Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist was basically a parable before I read it, I might not have been angry. But because I was wanting to invest in it as just like a novel, and it was so very allegorical, I was so mad at one point I threw it at the wall. It was on vacation and I scared my mother. Uh, so yeah, if I feel like I'm being preached to or talked down to, that's usually why I will hate a book. What were the inspirations for my novel? Uh, well, the novel I've just finished a draft of and I'm editing and hope to have out soon, The Walled City is its working title, was very directly inspired by Haruki Murakami's Hard Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. Um, I love that book. But you know, I read that and was like, okay, this walled city at the end of the world with unicorns being the only thing that can go in and out of it. Like, what if I had a whole book about that and it was real and like 
why is this the only city at the end of the world? And why are there unicorns there? And what does that mean? And that was kind of the inception of this novel, which you know then spiraled out into a whole bunch of other things. Uh, it's also very inspired by the anime Haibane Renmei, uh, which also has a walled city and like these winged little you know children in it who have these jobs and are sort of a second class society, and then a very mysterious city council who wear masks and only speak in hand signals. And so having like a, a race of winged people and everybody in the city sort of identifying themselves based on their work and having a city council that uh, didn't speak aloud but wore masks and used hand signals was very like Haibane Renmei. Uh, so I do draw influences from like anime a lot as well as literature. Uh, my Patreon novel that I just started that I'm working on right now, Grintide and Gloaming, is uh, basically me watching Mushishi, which is my favorite anime. And one of the things I like about Mushishi is that it's not a romance. But then, of course, being me, I was like, okay, but what if it was a romance? Uh, so Grintide and Gloaming, the, uh, the initial seed that became that story was me being like, okay, what if Mushishi was a gay romance? Um, and of course, it has fairies instead of Mushish, and is um, heavily influenced by British folklore, so it's different in that sense. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, comics and anime and video games are also, and you know, superhero stories, like there's a lot of these mythos that are other ways that we tell our really important cultural stories that aren't just novels. Uh, and I think I'm influenced a lot by things like that as well as novels. Uh, my favorite part of writing uh, was probably the very beginning when you get those exciting ideas based on these things you're excited about. Uh, you know, like watching Mushishi and thinking like, oh, I could write a story like this. And sort of like the impetus to write fan fiction. There's something that you want to have more of that doesn't exist in the world yet. And you're like, yes, I need to create that. That uh, rush of feeling and that hunger to create that thing is my favorite part. Um, and I always try to write down all of those uh, things that I'm really excited about at the beginning so that when I get to the middle and I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know why I ever started the project, I can go back and be like, this is what you were excited about. Uh, and maybe even reread or rewatch some of the things that inspired me. Um, and my, <laughs> my other favorite part is being done. Uh, getting to the end of that draft was incredibly powerful. It's the first long thing that I've ever finished. And I think just proving to myself that I could finish a draft of something that's it's currently more than 100,000 words, I'm going to try to trim it down uh, in its second draft. But um, because I'm such a slow writer and I've you know only published short stories so far and uh, fan fiction and things like that, being like, yes, I can write a novel, uh, gave me energy into my other projects that I'm working on that has been really exciting. I like um, collaborating too. It's a bit fraught because you know you're trying to fit someone else's vision into yours, but I have a webcomic that was initially a collaborative story. And I think fan fiction is also pretty collaborative because you're taking someone else's world and idea and you're trying to tell a story with it that's true to their characters. Um, so I think getting 
it's very rare to be able to collaborate with someone. You have to find the right fit. But uh, that tends to keep me going more than if I'm just working on something completely in a vacuum by myself. Um, so whatever my work is in conversation with, whether that's literally another person or whether it's another creative work that inspired me, I think is part of what keeps me going. What kind of books would I like to see more of? Um, well, it was on my mind just because I just read it, but uh, the way that Casey McQuiston handles having a bisexual main character in her romance novel is fantastic. I really um, empathized with him. Like, I felt like her portrayal of having a bisexual character, you know, having a hard time figuring out he's bisexual even though he's literally done things with people of the same sex and being like, yeah, but that was just a thing. I could be straight. Um, so sort of figuring yourself out late in life and, you know, still realizing, like, you're not gay, you're bisexual. Um, I thought she did a really good job of portraying that. And I would love to see more books that do that. But um, there are lots of books that do that. I've gotten to read books that have fantastic bisexual main characters. I usually write books that have bisexual main characters. Um, and I think it's important to have books that are queer, that have bisexual characters in different sex relationships. Like that is still a queer book, even if it's, you know, a romance between a man and a woman, if either of those characters is bisexual. Um, so I think recognizing that, that's just a personal thing for me, wanting to see, you know, more representation of bisexual characters. Uh, and I think, you know, in general, there's a lot coming out and it's pretty exciting. So uh, I feel encouraged rather than frustrated on that front. Uh, I, I would like to see, I understand, and one of the reasons I write queer stories that have happy endings is I feel like we're in a part in literature where we're trying to correct how basically all queer stories had to be tragedies. Um, the main characters were always dying. Uh, it still happens so much in mainstream me media. Uh, so there is a big push to have, you know, if you have queer characters, you know, you shouldn't just kill them off. You shouldn't only write tragedies about them. So there's this big push to have happy endings. And I think that's good. But I would love to see sort of the land beyond that where we can have queer characters in every kind of story. Because I mean, I kind of have a soft spot for tragedies. I mean, I like cyberpunk and most cyberpunk stories are uh, tragic stories. Um, you know, and I think being able to tell queer stories that aren't just romances and aren't just happy endings. Like we want to have those books so that people can read things to encourage themselves and then know that when they read them in a way like their hearts are safe. I think people read a lot of romance books in particular to like feel better when they're feeling bad and to be encouraged. I know when I was first coming out I just read a slew of queer romance novels about people coming out and it turning out okay for them because that gave me courage that like, okay, I could do this and it'll turn out okay for me too. So I think that's important, but I would love to see like fantasy, cyberpunk, sci-fi, like every kind of, uh, you know, genre that just incidentally has queer main characters and it could be any kind of story. And I think we'll get there. Um, 
Oh, and this is like the pettiest thing ever, but more people should write about unicorns. Unicorns are for adults too. What is something that writers need to be doing in the real world? I mean, for me, I know that I'm usually flirting with some kind of burnout and most writers that I know are always on the edge of burnout. I mean, there's always this sense that you should be writing, you're not writing enough, um, and then you're also probably wearing other hats, uh, you know, with having to do things with family and probably with another job or two. Uh, so it's really easy to just push yourself to the edge. And even though you have almost no extra time besides those things, I think having a hobby that is not something you're doing for money or trying to, you know, turn yourself into a commodity and something that is not really writing adjacent uh, is really good. So whether that's like knitting or painting or, you know, hiking, for me, it's horses. Um, going to the barn and having to focus and be completely in the moment because I'm working with a, you know, 2,000 pound animal that could hurt me if it were frightened or I wasn't paying attention. Um, I had a Clydesdale for nine years. I actually only recently sold her to go be a police horse because um, actually she got benefits with that job. She gets retirement and health insurance, which means she's doing better than I am. So I thought that was too good to pass up and I let her go be a police horse and I get to see her in like parades or things like that. But I've, I've been sort of at a loss because going to the barn was my restorative time. Like that was my exercise. That was my non-verbal, relational, peaceful time. It was the thing that got me outside in nature. So I've been hiking a lot since then, uh, but I really miss horses. I actually have a friend who has a horse who's recovering from breaking his leg. Uh, he survived, and um, my friend is pretty wealthy, so she was able to get him surgery, and uh, he'll, he won't be able to be ridden again, necessarily, but uh, he can live a pretty fulfilling life like just being a horse out in the pasture with his friends. But he gets a little, like, ignored and, and lonely, I think, because he can't be ridden, so, you know, people aren't doing as much with him, so I might sort of sign up to be his buddy who goes and brushes him and just takes him to eat grass. His name is Caspian. Because um, I just need time being quiet, being out with a horse, being in nature. So for me, that's it. But I think you should find something, even if you feel like you don't have any spare time, like make that spare time to do something that isn't where you're giving yourself to your other relationships and isn't where you're giving yourself to your writing and isn't where you're giving yourself to your job so that you can just like recuperate and fill up the well. And I find when I do that, I'm actually a lot more just healthy and productive in the rest of life anyway. Although, oh gosh, I hate to phrase it that way because it makes it sound like the purpose of recuperating is to be productive, which is so capitalist and messed up. But you know, just for you, to be human and to not be burned out, um, that would be my advice. What is something else that I'm working on? Well, something I'm working on that I'm very excited about because I'm nearly done with the script and the art for the prologue is also nearly done is my retelling of the Errol Koenig story as a webcomic. Um, so it's based off of Goethe's Errol Koenig, but it's a story where, well, first of all, the main character is way aged up, so it's not so, like, 
creepy as the Goethe poem. And also, he gets agency. Uh, it's not just a thing that happens to him, but he has to navigate what it means that the Earl Koenig is courting him, and he has other options, and he's the son of a baron, and uh, sort of has to protect his barony from the Earl Koenig and the forces of the Fae. Um, but also the church who has moved in. It's also a bit based off of Goethe's other poem, Prometheus. Um, and I have a church of Prometheus, which is an atheist, humanist church uh, that uses alchemy, um, that is basically trying to usurp the position that the old gods had. So there's this tension between sort of the fairies and the old ways of doing things and this new humanist religion where it's like, humans can have power over nature through alchemy, so they don't need to be beholden to these old forces that are, you know, dangerous and not necessarily with humans in their best interest. And uh, so the main character, Biten, sort of has to choose not just between, you know, two very handsome men, but um, through between these two worldviews. So uh, I've been working on that for years and years, kind of on and off. Um, it's a collaborative story that began as an RP campaign, actually. Uh, so there was a lot more story than is going into the comic script. And one thing that's fun about it being a comic script that's new for me uh, is how different that is from writing a novel. Uh, you can fit a lot less story in, and you're telling it through pictures and dialogue instead of through prose. Uh, both of those don't come naturally to me, but I think are a very fun exercise, because I had to cut the story back to really just its bare essentials. Like what was the most exciting thing about the story to me and just tell that piece of it. And then having, you know, whole pages that have no prose and no dialogue and having to think in pictures um, is really stretches my brain and is really fun. And of course, like writing a script is different too because you're basically just talking to the artist other than the dialogue pieces. And I think leaving all of this leeway for the artist to interpret things and design things how they want to. Um, so I think the finished product is, you know, different from and better than even what you initially conceived. So that whole process has been really fun. And I'm hoping to get the prologue, you know, start posting that online in November, I think. It's a very wintry story. Uh, in this story, the Earl Koenig is the king of winter, so the whole thing takes place like in the middle of blizzards uh, in Bavaria, kind of in the um, early 1800s. So that, I, writing it in the summer makes me feel like I can escape the sweltering heat, and uh, winter is my favorite time of year. So imagining, you know, a frozen wintry landscape full of beautiful snow and ice just makes me happy. Let's see. And it's a fairy tale, and I like that fairy tales get to have their own logic. Like in novels, you sort of have to explain things in a way that makes sense to the reader. But in fairy tales, you have patterns you can follow that just get to be. Like, of course, there are three of the things, and you know, of course, if you go through that door, something terrible will happen. We don't have to know why, we just have to know that that's what happens. Um, you know, you know, old promises with fairies where they follow the letter of the law and not the spirit. And uh, just things that get to play with those old constructs and the sense of like humans moving through a world where humans are very small and nature and the fae and magic are very powerful and things don't necessarily make sense. Um, 
I love stuff like that. So yeah, do keep an eye out in November for the Earl Koenig. And um, if you like fairy tales as much as I do, I think you will like it. Who is my support group? Who has my back? Um, I'm really lucky in uh, my friends that I have who support my writing. Uh, one person is like my very good friend who just lives 10 minutes down the road from me now. Uh, but we met when we both lived in Japan, like more than 10 years ago, uh, Katie Gibson. And she's actually the person who introduced me to gay romance as a genre. She's like, oh, you, you love these manga. You should read these novels here, borrow a bunch of my books. And I did, and it was wonderful. Uh, and she's, uh, she reads a lot. She does a lot of like bookathons and blogging about books, uh, even though she's not a writer herself. So it's fun because I can, you know, complain to her about writer's block or, you know, just all the things I feel like I need to be doing that I'm not. And it doesn't stress her out, but um, she'll like go take me out for a beer if I'm depressed about something or take me out for celebratory tacos when I get something published or finish something that I was working on for a long time. So having somebody in your life is just like uncomplicated cheerleader, but also gets what I'm talking about when I'm talking about my stories, like excellent sounding board when I'm stuck in a plot and start just brainstorming things that could possibly fix it. So thank goodness for Katie. And then I have these two friends I've been friends with since middle school, uh, Alex and Emily. <laughs> in middle school, we all role played together and also had this really elaborate fan fiction crossover between MacGyver, Labyrinth, and Star Trek The Next Generation. I kid you not. But you know, some of those stories really weren't bad. And uh, that collaborative storytelling, I think, ended up teaching me a lot of things and ended up sort of being the foundation for like who I am as a writer today. Um, and one of our fan fiction stories ended up, like the plot behind it, not necessarily the characters, ended up being the prototype for uh, Emily's first novel that she finished. So it's very fun that I know the secret behind where that novel came from uh, and have to promise when she's on her book tour not to tell people that it started out as a thing between Jareth from Labyrinth and Murdoch from MacGyver. Uh, yeah, so that's fun. It's fun having people who know your history and who've known you for a long time and still think you're terrific. And Emily has a writing group in Charleston that uh, when I visited her in Charleston, they, I got to attend and I liked it so much uh, and we all got along. They were like, oh, you, you should Skype in or Facebook in when we meet. So uh, my only sort of regular writing group is actually Emily's writing group in Charleston and I'm the only person who Skypes in, but it's a lot like being there, surprisingly. Like, I don't get to have the wine and cheese, but um, I get to see everybody's faces as we read our work. And that's fun because a lovely group of women and um, they write in very different genres than I would. Like one person writes, you know, historical fiction, another person writes poetry and um, not queer romance. And it's, uh, you know, I get very different viewpoints on my things than I would from sort of my little bubble of queer fantasy writer friends. So that's really fun. But then Emily, I swear, is the exact demographic of like people I'm writing to. I can send her something, a chapter where I feel like I'm in the woods, or I'm tired of writing it, or I, you know, just hate everything about it. And she will pick out those gems of ideas that were the things that I was most excited about. And she sees them and she'll be like, oh, that is great. I get it. You, you're doing this and you're doing this. And having somebody get it 
having someone who gets you and your writing and your world and can be in like sort of in your head with you in that space is amazing. So I'm just blessed to be friends with Emily and Alex that way. And uh, my favorite beta reader so far is my partner Jordan, um, who is really incisive and gentle. But we met, <laughs> we met actually uh, over reading fan fiction on Archive of Our Own. So fan fiction has made me a good community, let me tell you. But yeah, like in part because Jordan likes the same kind of stories that I like, uh, has been really helpful in reading things and not only seeing uh, what I'm trying to do, but helping me find places I could do it better and having really good suggestions. So uh, having someone who's that close to you, who's willing to be, you know, incisive and, you know, say good things, but in a gentle way is amazing. Because, you know, when things are just baby projects, it's hard to show them to people. But I feel very safe showing them to Jordan and to Emily and to Katie. So, yeah, I'm very lucky. Get yourself some friends like that. See, how does storytelling shape culture and identity? Um, I think there's this, well, I mean, first of all, humans tell stories. I think telling stories is part of what makes us human. And I think telling ourselves our stories about who we are and our lives is really how we shape who we are. And that happens not just with individuals, but with communities, with countries. Um, and I think it's really fun when people take a story that's, you know, canon, and they start to overlap it with their own stories and make it personally meaningful to them in a different way and transforming it. So I'm... I feel like a story is really alive at the point that people are making fan fiction and fan art and uh, cosplays of it. Uh, I'm really into fan fiction, as you can obviously tell from my history. But I, I got to study fan culture in grad school, which uh, was really fun. And so if you look at top-down stories, like national stories about how countries say who they are, uh, literature is definitely a part of that. So um, Japanese history is what I've studied, so that's what I feel, you know, qualified to talk about. But when Japan sort of called itself a modern nation after the Meiji Revolution in the uh, mid to late 1800s, they actually chose a body of literature that would be their literary canon because all of the, you know, European and American nations, to be a modern nation, you had to have great works of literature, otherwise you were uncivilized. So things that hadn't really been considered literature with a capital L before uh, became that because a group of people literally chose them. So things that had been poetry, things that had been religion, uh, they were like, these are our great literary works. So, you know, who you are as a nation, your history and your literature is a major part of defining that. And another thing that uh, Japan does that's very fun is they have a period drama that they do every year. It's called the Taiga drama. And it's very beautifully produced, lots of episodes. It's like on par of the kind of period dramas that the BBC does. Um, and they're very accurate uh, as much as they can be, you know, with costume, with historical facts. And they tend to film them on site in locations where things happened. But because they film them on site in these rural areas, if a drama is popular, because it has you know, these fabulously beautiful actors and it's a really fun story, it's, you know, dramatized, uh, 
you get these tourism booms to these really remote locations where they filmed it and people make these pilgrimages and that idea of pilgrimage that people want to do something physical go to a physical place uh, to somehow make a story more real to themselves but it's not just because that's where historically something happened they might go there and cosplay as an anime character who's related to that samurai who was in that thing or they might um, have fan art that they leave as an homage at that location, like a little manga that they drew. Uh, they could write letters to the character. Um, there's actually, at the Sakamoto Ryoma Museum in Kochi, which is really remote, it is on the far side of Shikoku Island, and when the drama about Sakamoto Ryoma aired, millions of people went to this tiny city in this really remote location to go to the museum dedicated to Ryoma, and they wrote him letters. And the museum kept them all. And when I was doing my research, I got to go read them and translate them. And so some people are writing letters to the national historical figure. Some people are writing letters to, like, the romantic hot actor figure from the drama itself. And some people were writing letters sort of to Ryoma as, like, a, like a friend or a figure in their own stories. Like, it got very fantastical. But I think that overlapping of, like, how your personal identity relates to these either historical or even fictional characters uh, is really interesting and upsets that sort of top-down, here's the canon, who's here we are as a nation, here's our base of power. I think when you are playful with it, um, it becomes more interesting. So, like the fact that a Highclere castle in England has basically become Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey is not a real place but everybody wants to go to Downton Abbey, so they go to Highclere Castle, and it actually saved the castle uh, financially because so many people went there as tourists. So that kind of like wanting to make pilgrimages and be a part of a fantasy story is really interesting to me. And I feel like fan art and cosplay and like going to conventions where you get to meet the author especially, but you have fan art or are dressed up as their character or I feel like this it's where stories come alive and become part of identities and cultures beyond what was initially intended and that's just really fun to me. Uh, so my one of my biggest goals is to write something that people want to make fan art or cosplay or write fan fiction about uh, and want to like you know, see themselves in those characters, uh, want to write more stories in those worlds, want to introduce even their own characters to those characters and worlds. And I think that kind of transformation of canon is um, where something that was like one identity, it's an identity that I made, you know, would suddenly spiral out into all of these other things and have a, a bigger effect. Uh, so that's how I feel about fan fiction, personally. Clearly I'm coming down on that side of things. So anyway, I um, hope you enjoyed listening to that and don't mind my slightly anti-copyright heretical views. <laughs> Although, of course, you know, piracy is awful. Plagiarism is even worse. And, you know, everybody deserves to make money for the things they create. But I, I just don't see um, fan fiction or fan art as detracting from that. I think it just creates even more excitement around a product and gives it even more life. So thank you very much, Moss, for letting me end with that zinger and for asking me to be a part of this uh, 
interview series at all, and I had a really good time talking to you, and I hope that you had a good time listening. Thank you.